This is Africa Digest. It's 1700 hours Central African time. It's a very good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Spumela Lazondi. We're also on channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. In studio with Ona Lenzinzi, Tabisuli Hugo and Tamik Let's take a look at the top stories. An analyst says a peace and security uh, threatened. International Committee of the Red Cross calls for urgent action to avert a disaster in South Sudan. In economics, Zimbabwe's finance minister urged local companies to be competitive. And in sports, FIFA Secretary General Jerome Falk denies any wrongdoing. But first, the news with Onelinsinzi. Thank you, Spoo, and a good afternoon to our listeners. Dozens of armed men on motorbikes suspected of being Islamic militants have attacked a police base in southern Mali today. About 30 attackers reportedly arrived at the base of Sikasa region near the Ivorian border, waving a black flag shouting Aluha Agba, which means God is greatest in Arabic. The death toll is still unknown, but reinforcements have been deployed to the area. Rwanda and Zambia are close to signing an extradition treaty that would pave the way for the extradition to Rwanda of fugitives linked to the 1994 genocide. This was announced yesterday by Foreign Affairs Minister of the two countries in the Rwandan capital, Kigali. Rwanda's Foreign Minister, Louise Mushikiwabo, gives us more. Uh, we have uh, a pending draft extradition treaty uh, which allows for the exchange of uh, individuals that are wanted um, in either country, uh, and that applies to a number of uh, fugitives uh, dating back to the time of the genocide. Uh, we, we've, the two countries are in the stage of commenting, giving last comments to that extradition uh, treaty, and that uh, should be completed anytime uh, soon and go on to signature, and I think uh, in this country and perhaps in Zambia to be ratified. FIFA Secretary-General Jerome Falk says the Caribbean Football Union and CONCACAF need to account for the misuse of the $10 million donated by South Africa. Falk has given a passionate defense of both FIFA and South Africa's role on the transfer of the money to a Caribbean diaspora fund, an amount that's become central to allegations of bribery surrounding the 2010 World Cup. The money is coming from South Africa's money and it's a, 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 a gift to the African diaspora in the Caribbean. Why? It is FIFA who suddenly has to explain the misuse of the money based on what you have found it's in BBC on the use of this money. Why it is not CFU and CONCACAF who have their own organization, they have their own uh, committees, they have an executive committee, they have a finance committee, they have all the structure in place in order to make sure that whenever money is transferred on their accounts, they should follow the use of the money. Lesotho's Prime Minister Pagadita Mosisidi has called on his predecessor and now leader of the opposition Obasutu Convention, Tom Tabane, to return home for talks, assuring him of his safety. Tabane BNP leader Tesele Masiribeni and 
RCL leader Kike Toronto fled the country saying they fear for their lives. Mosusidi insists that claims that government is refusing Tabane security and that soldiers arrested for immunity are being kidnapped is a deliberate lie campaign to cause confusion and discredit Lesotho. In the capital, Maseru police quelled a match yesterday by opposition supporters intended to deliver a petition showing contempt for what they say is Mosusidi's aloof stand on all these issues. At least six soldiers have been arrested and former Prime Minister Tom Tabani and two other opposition leaders are still on the run. Now the Prime Minister wants to set the record straight. He says information is being distorted to deliberately portray a negative image of his government. Musisidi dismissed allegations that he denied former Prime Minister Tabani security. He says he's waiting for him to set a date for talks. On the army arrests, the government insists that the army is applying the rule of law by arresting soldiers suspected of a mutiny. And finally, a girl who was forced into marriage at the age of 13 in Nigeria and admitted killing her husband and three friends with a rape poison has been freed from prison. Lawyer Hussein Aliyu Ibrahim says she managed to convince the prosecutor to drop demands for the death sentence. Another child bride condemned to death at 13 for killing her husband remains on death row a year after a West African court ruled her sentencing illegal. Channel Africa News. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Seventeen oh six, right here in Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. While coup d'etats have almost disappeared on the continent, peace and security is now threatened by African leaders clinging to power. But despite some key challenges, Africa has boasted several successful democratic transitions in recent years. That is the view of David Zunmano, who is a senior researcher for West Africa at the Pretoria-based Institute for Security Studies. He shared his thoughts with Channel Africa's Jinian Kutze at a briefing on the key crisis hotspots on the continent that are or should be on the agenda of the African Union Summit currently underway in Johannesburg in South Africa. Africa had made some progress in terms of democratization process, nominally but also institutionally. Look at Africa from 1960 to 2010. You can count up to 86 successful military coups as a way of changing governments or leaders. Look at Africa from 2010 to 16 today, we have less than 10 military coups. The majority of the country holds elections as a way to replace leaders. Whether those elections are credible or not is another debate, which means we still have a lot of effort to do in making sure that we reinforce the electoral processes, we reinforce the institution building mechanism to reduce the personalization of power. Because democracy is a process. But that doesn't mean that we are not facing some key challenges. We're still holding contested elections, elections that led to violence 2007. You have Nigeria, you have Kenya, you have Guinea, Conakry. You have a number of countries where you're talking about elections today, like if you are preparing for war. So I think 
We have made some progress, but Africa still has to face some challenges. When one talks about democratic processes, surely respect for a constitution is part of that. Currently, we are faced with the new threat of people clinging to power and that wants to change constitutions. Look, we have a Burundi, we have a Rwanda, we have a Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, you have uh, the Congo Brazzaville. Where those issues are going to come uh, seriously? It has happened before in West Africa where you have four countries that attempt to change the constitution, but all four countries, including Nigeria, Niger, Senegal, and Burkina Faso, failed dismally, showing that when the civil society organization, when you have a strong opposition to, to the attempt of a leader to hang on to power, the project of amending fraudulently the constitution to hang on to power can fail. Citizens want to see their country democratically well governed. They want to see the institution uh, um, consolidated. They want to be able to participate in free and fair elections and give chances to various political parties in the country who can really respond to the socio-economic or political challenges that they are facing. Burundi is one of the countries which is really under discussion now because of the president there wanting to extend for a third term. I'm using that as an example. There are other cases as well. Why can the African Union or regional economic communities not really address this? I think African Union has made it clear that the third term envisaged by the leader in Burundi is not possible. But that's how far African Union can go. Because in relation between the country and the continental organizations, you can only go to the extent that your mandates and the rules and regulations allow you to go. African Union cannot go and impose a political system in Burundi. And that's the shortfall of the system that we have put in place. But once you have a cohesion in the declaration made by the African Union, United Nations, European Union, all the big donors, the pressure can amount to the president to actually renounce his intention to amend the constitution, to hang on to power, because that can also be a source of conflict and instability that can negate or destroy the fragile gains that Burundi has recorded since the end of the conflict. Whereas the African Union is very adamant and outspoken about countries in which coups have taken place, can something similar not be declared regarding holding on to power forever? I think AU has already declared that. If you look at the African Charter on Democracy and Good Governance, from Article 23 to Article 26, it is clearly spelled out that anything that's related to forcing your stay in the power could be seen as a construction of regime, and AU can impose a sanction on it. Now, moving from that declaration into action calls into question the capacity of the African Union to impose a sanction on the country. Apart from excluding the country from AU institutions, what else can African Union do to force leaders to respect their constitutions? I think AU cannot do it alone. It needs to work together with key donors who have financial muscles who can really have some influence on our leaders to stop amending their constitutions and creating unnecessary political suffering to their people. Dr. David Zunmano is a senior researcher for West Africa in the Africa Conflict Prevention Program at the Pretoria-based Institutes for Security Studies. And he was talking to Channel Africa's Janine Kutzer.
It's 17.11 Central African time. The International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, calls for urgent action to avert a disaster in South Sudan. The world's newest country, nearing its fourth year of existence, is facing a disastrous reality. Extreme levels of violence in and around Lier over the last month have forced over 100,000 people to flee their homes and to seek safety in low-lying swamps far from any infrastructure. This comes on top of around 2 million people already displaced during the past 18 months since the crisis began in since the crisis began ICRC spokesperson Jean Yves Clemenzo explains Almost 18 months after the beginning of the current crisis the humanitarian situation remains very critical in, in South Sudan it's even one of the most critical in Africa today. So what we see is that still uh, more than 2 million people are, are displaced within the country and in the neighboring countries with an extreme level of violence. We see people who are desperately needing food. So we are calling all the actors, the international community, the parties in conflict, humanitarian organizations to act because it's really, really important and key that things move now. Can you give us a breakdown of what the ICRC has been doing in response to alleviate the ongoing crisis in that country? Our teams have been working very, very hard. We have been mainly distributing food, food for uh, 150,000 people, and we are aiming at distributing more food in the coming months, maybe up to 300,000 people. We have surgical teams uh, working to try to save lives. More than 3,000 people uh, operated uh, the, the last 18 months. We are also trying to bring capacities to people not only to receive food but to produce their, their own food by distributing seeds, tools, uh, some fishing nets. So a lot of work but it's not enough. The needs are, are huge in that country. And finally now, the ICRC is appealing for an additional 23 million US dollars. What are the organization's priorities? Our priorities are first to uh, increase our food uh, distributions because the nutritional situation is alarming in some parts of the country. So we want to double the number of people we want to help. We want to continue to have a very strong uh, health response because uh, people are injured and we have five surgical teams. It's our largest deployment of surgical teams in the world. We want to also help people to sustain themselves so we are going to increase, for instance, the vaccination of cattle. Uh, it's, it's key for many people in some parts of, of South Sudan. But just keep in mind that this help is not enough. It's a huge country with uh, immense needs, and we are just doing one part of it. And we really call all the actors to also act to try to, to help these people at a time close to the fourth anniversary of independence. That's the voice of Jean-Yves Clemenzo, who is the spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross on the line from Geneva in Switzerland, talking to Jane Matebula. The Zimbabwean government has, with immediate effect, lifted the ban of exportation of chrome ore, which was imposed in 2011. According to the Mines and Minerals Minister, Walter Chitakwa, the ban was meant to enable mineral beneficiation and effective accounting framework for chrome ore being exported to Maputo. However, the ban has enabled competitors such as South Africa, who have huge chrome deposits, to cash in, hence the lifting of the ban. Someone Muchemwa reports from Harare. 
The Zimbabwean government has bowed down to competition and with immediate effect lifted the ban of exportation of raw chrome. According to the Mines and Minerals Development Minister Walter Jidakwa, government has also reviewed the royalty fees for chrome ore from 2% to 5%, while is the export tax of 20% has been scrapped. Shidakwa stated that the move is meant to help improve chrome smelting and refining in the country. So far, the government has allowed for the export of up to 30 million tons of the chrome ore in lumpy fines and concentrate over and above the export of processed ferrochrome. Minister Walter Shidakwa explains. In order to enable chrome ore producers to mobilize financial resources, for capitalization to invest in modern technology in smelting as well as address the plight of the small-scale chrome producers. Government has, with immediate effect, lifted the ban on the export of chrome ore to allow for the export of up to 30 million tons of chrome ore, that is lumpy chrome, fines and concentrates. Over, over and above the export of processed ferrochrome. Minister Walter Chidakwa added that Zimbabwean government has decided to reduce electricity tariffs from 8 cents to 6.7 cents per kilowatt hour for chrome producers in the country. Chidakwa explained the lifting of the ban was to make Zimbabwean smelting companies become competitive and industrialized according to the global trends such as the ones in South Africa. You must consider it in the international context because we play on the international scene. We are, ex we are thought to host about 12% of the world's chrome. South Africa hosts 74% of the world's chrome. Now, a ban that does not, that is not supported by South Africa is very unlikely to succeed. And South Africa has had serious problems. They were the biggest producers of high carbon ferrochrome with almost all their smelters working. But because of the power problems, a lot of their smelting capacity went down. And as it was going down, the companies then resorted to exporting raw chrome. So where we were putting a ban, the South Africans were opening When the up. ban was imposed in 2011, government expected companies to go along with the beneficiation policies and create revenue for the fiscals. However, that did not take place, forcing the Zimbabwean government to backtrack on its mining policies. The mines minister indicated that Zimbabwe has 12 chrome smelters that have to submit clear work plans despite lifting of the ban. Okay, the, the 12 companies, uh, out of the 12 companies, um, all of them have got smelters. But uh, some of them had, had stopped because of the price of power. And some of them were teetering. Um, and um, the, the, the introduction of a lower price of power will bring them into action. And uh, we were estimating that in immediately eight out of the 12 will come into action.
and the others will they have other problems other than other than the issues of power. Those will have to do some some more work, and it may take a little bit longer for them to get themselves back online to be able to start uh, producing. Whether these or they may come to us and say we want to export raw chrome, we would have to see their plan of rehabilitating and back, getting back their smelter. Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa aged local companies to be competitive as the mining sector is affected by global trends. Our challenge as a country, and I've said it on many occasions, is that because of our cost structure, we are not competitive. We regionally, continentally and globally and that cuts across all sectors of the economy, where they are talking about agriculture, we are talking about mines, we are talking about manufacturing. Our cost structure, we need to look at it. And how we are going to tackle it is an exercise, a mammoth exercise in itself. So sometimes the efforts we are doing is like tinkering, and I want to admit, but at the end of the day, we have to address the cost structure of our economy, including wages, including the cost of power. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And you're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa at 1721, the Central African time. And thank you very much for staying with us. My name is Spomela Lezondi. Now, the Trek for Mandela Caring for Girls campaign officially gets underway today at the Winnie Mandela School outside Tembisa, east of Johannesburg in South Africa. Research shows that girls from marginalized backgrounds could miss up to 50 days of school a year by not having access to sufficient sanitary care. The Track for Mandela Caring for Girls initiative aims to raise over $300,000 in order to support 270,000 impoverished schoolgirls with sanitary pads for a year, ensuring their access to education is not disrupted at this key point in their schooling careers because of menstrual challenges. To talk to us more on this, we were joined earlier by manager of the Mandela and Outreach at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, Yase Kotlo. The campaign has, has been received quite well and it's in its fourth year now. It has attracted interest and has grown in leaps and bounds where we, as we started off in supporting Caring for Girls, which is a campaign that is run by Imbumba Foundation, we found that there's even a more need as, as we dug deep into understanding actually 
the cause and what we were fighting for. And this is why this year our CEO, Salo Hatang, mm-hmm. actually got involved personally to ensure that even more girls this year will reach and will ensure that, you know, they do not miss those 50 days of school because that is a huge time out of their life and it is huge missed opportunities for them. Now, we know that those alarming statistics are really undesirable. And, I mean, as you've been going on with the campaign for the past four years, have you seen the numbers dwindling in terms of uh, the statistics that uh, we mentioned earlier on? Or are we still, you know, having this uh, problem in, in the magnitude that it is in? It's quite unfortunate that we found that there's even more need. And quite even more alarming when you go to very urban and areas like we've done now with the school in Tembisa and need to actually do a proper assessment of that is understanding if girls in Tembisa in an urban space where they have access to shops and resources, how much more for girls in very rural areas. Mm. So within that we've understood that the demand is much more. Mm. And that is exactly why we're saying we're going to try do our best to reach at least about 270,000 girls. Yeah. Now, is this project only exclusive to schools, or is it one uh, that will be widening, I mean, in future? And who have you partnered with in your efforts? We are looking at widening it to actually ensure that it benefits communities mm-hmm. and young girls that do not otherwise even have access to schools, because, I mean, these are one of the challenges that we have within South Africa and Africa. Yeah. And in the long run, with the support of organizations like Lilet, who have been always a champion for the longest time, and we have a lot of other corporates that include Tele Investment mm-hmm. and a lot of other organizations who are behind this. And it is also the climbers themselves. I mean, with the names that you have of those climbers and the dedication that they have, yeah. we want to highlight this issue and actually get a lot even more other corporates to get involved. So with that, I'm even inviting everyone who's also listening to this interview and actually to get involved and find a way of getting involved. Yes, Godra is manager for Mandela Day and outreach at the Nelson Mandela Foundation on the line with Zekona Miso earlier today. According to statistics compiled by the International Organization for Migration, IOM, the number of migrants landing in Europe in 2015 has passed 100,000 thus far. The number is slightly ahead of levels reached at this time in 2014 and reflects a growing seaborne migration from the Middle East and Africa. Most of the landings take place in either Italy or Greece. IOM spokesperson Flavio Giacomo explains. Yeah, it's more than 100,000 migrants. About 55 migrants uh, reached Italy by sea. The majority of them uh, arrived from Libya, departed from Libya, which is the main transit country. And 47,000 migrants actually arrived in Greece this year, which is a, a huge increase compared to last year. Just uh, think that last year in December 2014, the total number of arrivals of migrants in Greece by sea was 34,000. Now, on the 9th of June, the number is already 47,000. There is a huge increase of arrivals, especially in Greece. What are some of the reasons behind this huge increase in the number of migrants going to Europe? Well, you know, there are many reasons behind this increase. And, uh, of course, migrants arriving in Greece are mainly Syrians and Afghans. There are a lot of Syrians who are uh, increasingly fleeing from the Syrian war. 
to the Syrian borders and the refugee camps close to the borders and uh, try to reach their relatives and friends in Europe. So this is uh, the main reason behind the increase of arrivals in Greece. The Syrian crisis is not getting any better, probably it's getting worse for refugees. This is why so many people are going in Greece. While the increase of people arriving in Italy, there is a slight increase. And there are many nationalities in that case because there are Syrians, but mainly Eritreans and Somalis, and also migrants coming from Western Africa, Nigeria, Gambia, Mali, and so there are many different kinds of migrants. The problem is that Libya has become a very dangerous country for migrants, so even the migrants who are living in Libya, who have been living in Libya for years, many of them now they're trying to flee from the country because the sub-Saharan migrants are target of abuses and violence, so they are trying to leave the country because it is not safe for them anymore. Now, let's talk about deaths at sea. There have been reports of thousands of migrants dying in the Mediterranean in attempts to cross over to Europe since the beginning of this year. How different has this situation been compared to last year? Well, you know, compared to last year, the majority of victims uh, uh, occurred in, in the channel of Sicily, people coming from uh, uh, Libya and trying to reach uh, Europe in Italy and southern Italy. And this year we have uh, registered the deaths of 1,800 migrants, and uh, which is a lot compared to last year at the same period where migrants' deaths were 400. So there has been an increase of deaths. Fortunately now, the European Union has decided to enlarge the Triton operation, which will have uh, more funds, and most importantly, it will be enlarged geographically. These, these European ships will patrol the water 138 miles off the Italian coast. As a matter of fact, the new Triton operation will become a new Mare Nostrum operation, so it will be easier to avoid shipwrecks and to rescue migrants at sea. And finally, what purpose do statistics about the number of migrants who are reaching Europe serve? Well, it's important because uh, these are human beings. People have to know that people are dying. Public opinion has to know that people are dying. And uh, unfortunately, the majority of these migrants are missing at sea. The bodies are not recovered. So it is very important that those deaths do not remain unknown. It's important for them. It's important for the public opinion in order to understand what kind of tragedy is happening in the Mediterranean Sea. Because we cannot turn our heads somewhere else. We have to face these, uh, these tragedies and try to solve them. Flavio Di Giacomo is the spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration. He is in Rome, Italy, and he was speaking to my colleague Jane Matebula earlier today. It's 17.30 Central African time, and it's time for news headlines. Here's on Elentinti. Looking at your headlines, dozens of armed men on motorbikes suspected of being Islamic militants have attacked a police base in southern Mali today. FIFA Secretary General Jerome Fox says the Caribbean Football Union and CONCACAF need to account for the misuse of the $10 million donated by South Africa and a girl who was forced into marriage at the age of 13 in Nigeria admitted to killing her husband and three friends with red poison has been freed from prison. Channel Africa News. Thank you very much, Onele, with that update. 
Now, Nigerian defense leaders earlier today concluded a meeting with their counterparts from Cameroon, Chad and Niger, which sought to find ways to tackle terrorist group Boko Haram. It's the first such meeting since President Muhammad Buhari was elected, and it follows his visit recently to Niger and Chad and his attendance at the just-ended G7 summit in Germany. Thousands of lives have been lost in Nigeria since 2008 as a result of the terror perpetrated by Boko Haram. The crisis has spilled to neighboring countries in the form of Boko Haram carrying out attacks or refugees fleeing to seek refuge. Joining us on the line to talk about this is a voice of Nigeria's news director, Ahazia Suleiman. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest, sir. Hello and uh, how is South Africa today? South Africa is a bit cold today, but yeah, we're keeping on. I hope Nigeria is good as well. Oh, it's warm. Uh, we're in summer, and uh, the weather is very, very nice and climate, and so we enjoy ourselves. Ah, we're jealous. Uh, now, could you just talk us through some of the important outcomes of today's meeting? Yeah, um, you know the uh, Chad Basin uh, Commission, like Chad Basin Commission meeting, and the Republic uh, Defense Chiefs just uh, ended their meeting. Uh, the meeting started on Tuesday and today, Wednesday. They are setting the agenda for the head of state and government of uh, the Lechard uh, Basin Commission and the Republic uh, in preparations for the establishment of a multinational joint tax force, formally, uh, formally to take over the fight against uh, Boko Haram and the defense chiefs. Um, they agree to urgently and closely work together, and they are going to present their stand to the uh, heads of states and governments in tomorrow's meeting. They decried poor funding of the joint task force, and they said for them to succeed in winning the war and eliminating any form of insurgency, they will require about 90 million U.S. dollars to prosecute the war against insurgency, and uh, they want member nations and other donor countries to help in funding the operations of the joint uh, commission. And the, the money is not going to go into anything, but it, it could come in um, form of uh, equipment, um, things that they will need, logistics and other things, not necessarily giving fiscal cash, but the, uh, the way they estimated the money that will be needed is amount up to about $90 million. And um, the resolutions that they've reached uh, today's meeting, yesterday and today's meeting, will be presented on Thursday at the meeting of the presidents and heads of state of the Lechard Basin and the Republic, which is a neighboring country to Nigeria. Um, 90 million US dollars is a huge amount of money. Do you know how they arrived at that sum? No, they didn't tell, they didn't disclose that uh, to journalists. And um, what they're saying, they are going to present it to the heads of state. Uh, they will now break it down and defend every aspect of it. And if it is, they feel it is too much, they could reduce it to manageable level where they can also as well get um, sources of funding it uh, and appeal. Because 90 million, is, as you said, is a huge amount of money. Even when we change it to some of our currencies here, it's running into millions and billions of naira or um, rands and sort of things like that. But So they have to... Now go and defend it, and um, maybe they made the budget with the hope it could be cut down uh, so that it will not fall short of 
what they would be required uh, to, to, to fight the war against them. So there's one good thing about it. Already a commander for the Joint Task Force, uh, the multinational Joint Task Force, has been appointed. He's a major general in the Nigerian Army, uh, General Bulotai, who has reported in Njamina already in charge. When Buhari visited the country last week, he had a close meeting with him, and he is expected also to be at the meeting in Abuja where uh, the heads of state will take a uh, definite decision on the fight against him. So it is the first time that these uh, bodies are going to come together to agree on formation of the multinational joint tax force and that they will need some sanctions from uh, the United Nations uh, for it to start operations. So initially it was an ad hoc kind of arrangement between the military in Cameroon, Nigeria, Chad, and Niger working together to fight the Boko Haram. But when it is fully established and an endorsement coming in from the United Nations, the funding will come and the operations will not be hindered because as it is now, some of the countries are a little bit suspect in allowing military from other uh, countries to walk, to come into the country. And so that hinders the real uh, work and operations of the uh, multinational joint tax force. So with the agreement, the functioning, by the, the heads of state and government, and UN also passing a resolution on it, I think the war against insurgency will be quickly, quickly won, although they've achieved so much with the mm-hmm. little non-official uh, way of collaboration. I think uh, um, achieved so much by breaking into the main strongholds of uh, the Boko Haram in northern Nigeria. Yes. Um, you are saying that um, they are now working towards starting this operation, but do we know when it's most likely going to start, or are those discussions still going to continue? Yeah, well, they, they, we don't know exactly when the, the, the resolution has to be passed, first agreed or tomorrow. We don't know what the heads have said. They may have contrary views. <laughs> Oh, um, Ahazi Suleiman, could I just ask you to probably return to the first spot that you were in because we seem to have lost you now. Well, uh, I didn't hear you well. Uh, now you're back. We had lost you for a second. I was asking if you could return to the spot that you were in. You are still telling us about the operation and when it's most likely going to start? Yes, we don't know exactly when it's going to start, but already they have appointed a first commander and are waiting for the president and the heads of state of the lecture commission to jointly pass a resolution on it and push it to the United Nations for also another resolution so that it will be free. The joint task force will move into every country where there is insurgents, where there are problems, they can move in freely without having um, doubt or having been uh, restricted or in, uh, with some restriction or impediment of lack of resolution. But now the heads of state of these countries, uh, for a number with the Republic, also joining hands to contribute the uh, forces to the uh, troops to the force. And um, the UN passing the resolution, I think that is a major, yes. major and a huge step forward towards the elimination of, uh, of insurgency in the left of uh, North and Central Africa. Mm. Um, now, President Muhammad Buhari took over just recently, um, but we've already seen an increased number of suspected Boko Haram attacks. There are 11 recorded since he took office and at least 93 deaths. Um, could you say this undermines his ambitions to clamp down on this insurgency? 
you see, why they are trying to make, uh, since uh, uh, President Muhammad Buhari took over, he made it clear that he is going to confront them head on. He is a retired military general in the Nigerian army, and um, already before he, his ascension to power, the Nigerian military had dislodged some of them from their strongholds, particularly the Sambisa forest, where they had camps. And so they are roving around, they are running short of ammunition, they are running short of medics, they are running short of um, money, drugs, they are running short of food, particularly food. And so they are creating havoc, trying to uh, get what they can get from neighboring towns and uh, villages around the area. And that's why they are now attacking. Most of the time, they attack to destroy and to scare people so that they could rush into pharmaceutical chemists to take drugs, to take food from stores, to take uh, break into banks and get some money that they could use in funding their operations. Basically, they are running short of everything. And that is why uh, it's like a dying lion that is trying to fight and die with whoever available uh, in front of him. So uh, it's not as if uh, the, 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 they're trying to try the might of uh, the Nigerian things, uh, Bahari took over, but they know that even if they try that, with the movement of the command of um, uh, command to Meduguri, they've already, advanced party has already arrived in Meduguri, mm-hmm. uh, the center of the theater of war. So with all these things in place, they know their time is up, and any moment from now, uh, they are blotted out with the coming of the multinational joint tax force. Uh, uh, I think that is why they are trying to do what they can do to get what they can get and, and run away. All right. Thank you very much, Ahaza Suleiman. You're welcome. Thank you. Ahaza Suleiman is news director of The Voice of Nigeria, and he was joining us on the line from Abuja. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 17.41 Central African Time. Thank you very much for staying with us right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. A third of South Africans living with HIV say they have experienced a stigma, while a tenth others have completed suicide, have complicated have contemplated rather suicide. Um, this is the crux of South Africa's first stigma index released at the 7th South African AIDS Conference underway in Durban, South Africa. The meeting has gathered scores of scientists, activists and government leaders to reflect on the South African AIDS story and to assess on how to move forward in tackling the disease. In our weekly look at health issues, our reporter Elizabeth Lidecha takes a look at how the stigmatization of people living with HIV continues to undermine HIV prevention programs in South Africa. It's regarded as the world's largest study into HIV stigma, conducted with a view to measuring self-reported stigma and discrimination 
experienced by people living with HIV in South Africa. While the study found that one-third of South Africans living with HIV experienced stigma from their communities, an equal proportion of participants in the study also reported experiencing tuberculosis-related stigma. Dr. Farid Abdullah, Chief Executive Officer of the South African National AIDS Council, SANAC, explains the idea behind such a study. In South Africa, we've never actually measured the level of stigma. So this study was done to measure the level of stigma. We interviewed 10,000 people living with HIV and found that about one-third experienced stigma and about 40% experienced what we call internalized stigma. I think uh, part of the problem is that we have not done enough public education. So people still have a fear of the disease or a prejudice. You know, we can't just imagine that it goes away without proper communication, public education, and work, you know, within our social institutions like churches and schools. But uh, what's encouraging is that although the level is 30%, we think this has come down from previous levels before we have the idea that stigma was very high. What has changed that is the fact that people can now get antiretroviral treatment. Before, HIV used to be a death sentence, and that created a lot of stigma and prejudice and fear. But now that more people are in treatment, uh, we see that stigma is coming down, but it hasn't come down enough. We still have more work to do. South Africa continues to bear the brunt of the disease globally, with about 18% of the world's HIV-positive population. The country has made some strides in controlling the epidemic, but like many, Dr. Abdullah is concerned that stigma remains a huge problem, which continues to undermine effective HIV prevention programs. So we think that because of the stigma, because of the fear that people have of being stigmatized, there are certainly some people who are not going to go for an HIV test because they don't want to really confront the fact that they might have HIV. In addition to that, you know, this internalized stigma plays games with people's minds and we found that a lot of people who have HIV are um, making important life decisions such as uh, deciding not to get married, not to have children, and about uh, one in ten have uh, got suicidal tendencies. However, not all is doom and gloom. The country's deputy president, Cyril Ramaphosa, who's also chairperson of the South African National AIDS Council, has urged young people to be ambassadors in fighting the HIV-AIDS stigma by getting tested. Ramaphosa says they should encourage others to also get tested. Well, it's Elizabeth Lidicha reporting there. It's 17.45 Central African time. Here's Asanda Matawanyane with your economic news. Good evening. The Zimbabwean government has, with immediate effect, lifted the ban of exportation of chrome ore. The ban was imposed in 2011. According to the Mines and Minerals Minister Walter Chidwaka, the ban was meant to enable mineral beneficiation and effective accounting framework for chrome ore being exported to Maputo. However, the ban has enabled competitors such as South Africa, who have huge chrome deposits to cash in, hence the lifting of the ban. Our correspondent Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe has more. The Zimbabwean government has bowed down to competition and with immediate effect lifted the ban of exportation of raw chrome. 
According to the Mines and Minerals Development Minister Walter Jidakwa, government has also reviewed the royalty fees for chrome ore from 2% to 5%, while the export tax of 20% has been scrapped. So far, the government has allowed for the export of up to 30 million tons of the chrome ore in lumpy fines and concentrate over and above the export of processed ferrochrome. Barclays Africa Group has reached a deal to acquire a controlling stake in Kenya's First Assurance Limited for $28.84 million. Addressing the press in Nairobi, marketing executive for Barclays Africa Wealth Management, Lance Zulu, said uh, said that this acquisition of First Assurance was a good strategic fit for Barclays. Kenyan mid-sized lender Chase Bank has raised $49.43 million in the first tranche of an oversubscribed bond offer. The lender had sought to raise funds, but after receiving a subscription rate of 161%, it exercised an option to take up an additional loan. Last month, Chase detailed the plan to issue the seven-year multi-currency bond. The first tranche of the bond will be listed on the Nairobi Securities Exchange on June 22nd. Construction group Marian Roberts has won a $390 million five-year mining contract for Kalagadi Manganese. This means a shares climb of 4.55%. The awarding of this contract will further bolster the recent growth in the order book of the company's underground mining platform. Gold mining companies in the South African Chamber of Mines and four mine workers unions have agreed to start wage talks for the gold sector on the 22nd of this month. The talks are scheduled to continue for three days. However, the parties could not agree on the chairperson of the talks or the venue. Chief Negotiator for Gold for the Chamber of Mines, Elisa Stradom, explains what happened in yesterday's talks. Today was what we call the process meeting. And we talked about the dates and we did reach agreement that the first of our engagements, formal engagements, will be on the 22nd of June. We also talked about the issue of venue because the Chamber of Mines cannot house so many delegates. We're going to be about 130 people and we were all in agreement that we need a different venue. So we will collectively try and agree on a venue we will be doing that as well and we also talked about do we need a chairperson uh, and maybe a facilitator and we also reached agreement that we will look at that Taking a look at the financial indicators, one U.S. dollar will cost you 12.44 South African rand, 9.83 Botswana pula, and 7.15 Zambian kwacha. It's also trading at 0.65 to the British pound and at 0.89 to the euro. On the commodities, platinum is trading at $1,105 and gold at $1,176 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $65.25 a barrel. For Economics News, here on Channel Africa, I am Asanda Matsaunyani. It's 17.50 Central African time. Thank you very much, Asanda, for that update. And here's Tamek Boza with your sports news.
Thanks for joining us. In your sports update, let's start with soccer, where FIFA Secretary General Jerome Falke has dismissed allegations of wrongdoing over 10 million US dollars in bank transactions that are under investigation by US authorities. The transactions are central to US bribery investigation against soccer's governing body, FIFA. In an emotional appearance at news conference in the Russian city of Samara, a venue for the 2018 World Cup finals, he said that there were no grounds to blame him or FIFA over the way the funds were used. The money is coming from South Africa's money and it's a, 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 a gift to the African diaspora in the Caribbean. Why? It is FIFA who suddenly has to explain the misuse of the money based on what you have found it's in BBC on the use of this money. Why it is not CFU and CONCACAF who have their own organization, they have their own uh, committees, they have an executive committee, they have a finance committee, they have all the structure in place in order to make sure that whenever money is transferred on their accounts, they should follow the use of the money. Falke says it makes no sense to begin the bidding process for the 2026 World Cup in the current climate surrounding the FIFA corruption scandal. The vote to decide who will host the 2026 World Cup is due to take place in Kuala Lumpur in May 2017. Falke says the bidding process should rightfully be postponed for the time being. We have been working on the level of request for the 2026 FIFA World Cup. And there was an, uh, the, the, the decision to allocate this World Cup in 2017 and to start the bidding process soon. Due to the situation, I think it's a nonsense to start any bidding process for the time being. And we will postpone this bidding process uh, for, again, the time being. Zambia's Chipolopolo goalkeeper Kennedy Mwene says they are gunning for a convincing start in the 2017 AFCON qualifiers to make up for their stuttering performance for the 2015 tournament. Zambia kicked off their 2015 Africa Cup qualifiers with a scoreless draw against Mozambique and followed that up with a 2-1 away loss to Cape Verde before another stalemate on the road to Niger. Chipolopolo will host Guinea-Bissau in an opening 2017 Group A qualifier in Dola on Saturday. Guinea-Bissau has never qualified for any senior continental competition. Orlando Pirates' progressions in the CAF Confederations Cup have left the organizers of the Culling Black Label Cup with no choice but to shift the staging of this game to the 1st of August. Pirates against Kaiser Chiefs' preseason encounter had been set for the 25th of next month, but Pirates will be away to Tunisian giant CS Fashion on that day. South African Brewers marketing manager Sanele Kumete confirms the change. I think as we know that uh, Orlando Pirates has progressed in the CAF tournament. So firstly, let's congratulate them. Uh, well done. They're flying the South African flag. So as a consequence, we've had to relook at the date for the Culling Black Label Cup as it was scheduled to run on the 25th of July, which is now the CAF weekend. So fortunately, we've been able to come up with an alternative solution, which is now a new date of the 1st of August uh, 2015 for the Culling Black Label Cup game between Kazakhstan and Orlando Pirates. And nine athletics got Frihotzomukwena's preparation for the Beijing IWAF World Track and Field Championships in China have gone smoothly so far. The South African had a successful season last year, winning gold in the triple jump and silver medals at the Glasgow Commonwealth Games in Scotland. Our correspondent Geshom Nyati reports. The towering athlete, who is also an Olympic and World Championship silver medalist, will compete in both events, the triple jump and long jump, at the World Championships in China in August. Mukwena is geared up for the best and pays tribute to his new coach, Emory Foshe, who is based at the University of Johannesburg. The remaining meetings we have, we obviously still have uh, uh, some meetings building, uh, building up towards the World Championship in Beijing. So we have my next, I'm jumping next week again at, uh, in, in, in Norway, that's a Diamond League for long jump. And then immediately I'm jumping again in Rabat, 
doing the long jump and then I take a small break. Then I'm, I'm going to see where I'm going to start doing the triple jump. And finally in swimming, South African swimming sensation Chad Leclerc will add the 100-meter breaststroke to his repertoire at the second leg of the Men Ostrom Series in Barcelona today and tomorrow. The Olympic gold medalist will be in action in his specialized butterfly events, but will also be swimming the 200-meter freestyle and the 100-meter breaststroke. Fellow Olympic gold medalist Cameron van der Beek also missed out on a medal in the 100-meter breaststroke and climbed the silver medal in the 50-meter breaststroke sprint. National swimming coach Graham Hill says although the two-star swimmers did not come out on top in some of their events, there was nothing to be concerned about. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-six Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. An analyst says peace and security are threatened. International Committee of the Red Cross calls for urgent action to avert a disaster in South Sudan. In economics, Zimbabwe's finance minister urged local companies to be competitive. And in sports, FIFA Secretary General Jerome Falk denies any wrongdoing. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spomelele Zondi, producer Luanda Mawome, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Please send us comments. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus two seven seven nine. Six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero on Twitter we are on channel Africa one that is a channel Africa one on Twitter and we leave you with Nizalongoba Nipai Tandisomazwai. Don't even cry